0: I was still working my corporate job at this time and that was one thing you know because we've looked at a lot of brands in the last 15 years we stumbled upon a cadillac brand on number one massage Emmy, so we just thought they all were like that it was like oh franchising's great <laughs> uh, they give you all this information they let you talk to these people they tell you exactly how it's going to go if you just do what they tell you then everything is going to be great and not every brand in fact very few brands did the validation calls the way massage envy did but that's what happens when you're successful
1: welcome to franchise empires where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond i'm the wolf of franchises hey everyone it's the wolf today on the show we have henry kim and steven vereb these guys were awesome to speak to as they have a wealth of knowledge from their experience owning five Massage Envy's and two amazing Lash Studios. We discussed how they received 90% financing for their first two locations, how relationships with people in their industry has given them an unfair advantage, and a lot more. Hope you enjoy.
0: The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by The Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions, and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek, and Wolfpack Franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast.
1: Want to hire a virtual assistant? Belay knows how daunting it can be. Their staffing solutions and matching process pair you with qualified U.S.-based contractors without the stress of having to do everything on your own. Accomplish more and juggle less with Belay. Text WOLF to 55123 to get started. Well, yeah, I guess a good place to start. I mean, how'd you guys meet? Like, how long have you known each other?
0: Uh, how do we meet? So shoot, I'm not sure how many years ago it was. We've been business partners for 15 years now, but um, we had known each other through Henry's brother-in-law, Paul, who I worked with in corporate America in corporate sales. So Paul was always talking about his brother-in-law, Henry, and what a great sales guy he was and his business. And we all played golf together a time or two. And Henry and I bumped into each other at the Paul's kids birthday parties and stuff like that, that I was invited to. So you know we got to know each other socially on the fringe before we became business partners.
1: Gotcha. And when did you guys decide to like sit down and say, Hey, like let's do something together, whether it's franchises or something else.
0: Well,
2: I, you know, I was in corporate sales and I was looking at trying to make an exit from that and do something different. I always wanted to own my own business. And so I didn't want to start it from scratch, and so I liked franchising. So, actually, I hired a franchise broker, and I remember they presented Liberty Tax, Great Clips, and something else, and none of those really got me excited. And and then I just I was on the internet searching, doing my own searches, and then all of a sudden I see Massage Envy. I'm like, huh, I love massage. <laughs> yeah, who doesn't? Yeah, so let me look into that, and started that process and got on some initial calls and validation calls. And so I liked it. And I, asked, I actually asked my brother-in-law and, and sister if they wanted to partner with me. They weren't interested. They're not They really conservative. And, you know, so my brother-in-law, Paul said, well, you know, my friend, Stephen, you know him, he's ready to leave his corporate job and maybe he might be interested. So I, that's when I reached out to Stephen and kind of presented Massage Envy, and then and then we continued to do our due diligence and validation, and he was on board, and he made an offer I couldn't refuse. He said, "Look, I'll open up our first two locations and
0: be the general manager."
1: Oh, okay.
0: Actually, I said I'd open the first one. The oh, first one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then Henry and I found ourselves talking to the RD and I went there mentally thinking we were going to buy a location and that was going to be our start. And the guy says, how many you guys want? And Henry goes three. And I remember looking at Henry, like it wasn't a very good poker player at the time. I looked at Henry like what the heck are you doing, man? And we didn't say anything about three. And then the territory that was available was like an hour and a half to two hours away. And Henry's like, that's cool. We'll take those three. <laughs> And, uh, you know, then from there, we told the guy, because he was sitting on some other local territories that yeah. were closer to us. So we said, look, we would rather have those territories. You know, you got a week to get back to us kind of a thing. We ended up getting those the closer territories with the first three licenses.
1: Nice, okay. And today, like, for folks who don't know, Massage MV, founded in 2002. Today, it's owned by Rourke Capital, over a thousand locations nationwide. But, like, what time frame is this? And if you remember, like, generally how big is the concept when you're evaluating in it? 2007 2007
0: okay yeah there was about three somewhere between three and 350 open it was still founder level at that time it had not changed hands to any pe companies at yeah. that time well, but they did a good job they had like monthly or biweekly. weekly it was bi valid- validation, validation
2: calls. calls and so we sat in on a handful of those and Every one of them, they would go over their numbers like they were all making money. (laughs) All doing very well. I remember the one, Davy Clinic with Jerome Kern, actually, Jerome Kern, uh, who is a co founder of Orange Theory. He was a massage envy franchise. And I remember that validation call he did. Like they were crushing it back then.
1: Yeah. All right. So 300 locations. Yeah. That's more than enough proof of concept. So you agree on the three-pack. How'd you go about financing that? SBA. You used SBA.
0: We, we did. You know, we, we didn't know anything <laughs> to speak at that time. And SBA was the most logical place to go. So through some networking, we had found a, a rep at what was then BB&T. Now they're Truist, which is more of a regional-sized bank on the East Coast. Okay. And we went through the SBA process for the first two gotcha so with 5 today
1: you've self-funded the rest via like i'm assuming right the other the cash flow from the existing two stores
0: not exactly so i was playing beer league softball and uh, a group of entrepreneurs were kind of on the team one of them being a like a number 2 number 3 guy in a local community bank here So after the games over soda in the parking lot, I started picking his brain on banking and SBA financing and how to not have to go SBA. And he gave me a nice parking lot education. And um, from there, I started smiling and dialing, probably called probably 10 to 15 different small community banks, basically saying, look, we have two locations. We want to get out and refinance. We don't want to do SBA. We're looking for conventional financing. And you know we're not going to put any liens on our houses. We want to be out of that. And we'll cross collateralize the business using the cash flow. If you can do the deal, great. Let me know if you can't, that's okay. I don't want to waste your time. Don't waste mine. And I was dictating the terms we were looking for to see who was willing to do that deal. And we ended up whittling that list down to probably about three places, which is what we were looking for. And then we negotiated with those and we found the right partner that we ended up not just becoming, you know, partners with them from a banking perspective, but Henry and I ended up investing in that community bank as shareholders. And so we rode that way for a while. That was the best paper investment that I had personally ever made. Yeah. It worked out very, very well. Yeah. Not to mention getting your app. Like you're not going to, they still have to, you know, do their underwriting and whatnot. So it's not like you're going to get a loan you don't deserve, but it sure is cool to be able to pick up the phone and get your app put to the top of the stack because it's, it's a relationship deal. You're not the number with a big bank and lost in sba land
1: yeah i'd love to dive in a little bit on like into the weeds of the financing just because a lot of people right they see the investment range for franchises and they think they need that entire you know pile of cash already in their bank account to afford it but i'm gonna guess right with massage envy at the amount of locations that had when you got in that like relative to the investment the loan was probably close i am guessing here like 80% 80% of the investment were you probably able to uh, afford with that level of proof of concept in the country already?
0: I think it was an 80-20 deal. Did we put, I don't know that we actually did put 20% in. I think, in. It, I think was, it was closer I, to 15. I think, I think
2: it was like, with the fees I, think it, I think it might've been 20%, but they counted the franchise fees and like, you know, other fees as part of it. Gotcha. Part of that 20%. Yeah. Or it might've even been 90 10
0: well, so I think you're, you're right on both yeah, accounts. I, th- I think it
2: was 10%
0: down. Our yeah. rep got really creative and she did. She took the license fees that we had already paid to misogyny corporate and she utilized that as toward our skin in the game. And then we only had to put a little bit more capital in above that. So when it was all said and done, and that capital really worked out to be the SBA guarantee fee, and actually we, we financed that. We were able to finance the SBA guarantee fee. Yeah. So we yeah we put very very little skin in the game outside of the licenses that we had already purchased. So it was sub twenty percent at that time. Yeah, maybe he and
2: I total our cash, maybe a hundred thousand apiece. That's it was nine. I remember the check. Yeah, nine. Yeah, ninety thousand apiece maybe. And and then we just used leverage. We used debt.
1: And now that's for the first two locations.
2: Yeah, but they were one at a time. Yeah, but. Um, we've we financed
1: that's amazing and I want to get to because obviously right that's a lot of leverage It's great to minimize your cash down but I want to ask you about like how those first two locations went when you launched and what the first few years were like but uh, while we're on the topic right uh, Stephen you were saying that after those first two you didn't want to go SBA so can you maybe both whoever wants to take it just kind of summarize like why, a conventional lending looked more attractive to you, basically, after you had those first two locations up and running?
0: So, you know, again, going back to you don't know what you don't know when you first get going. And there's still tons of stuff that we don't know. We learned something new every day about the financing piece or landlord lease negotiations. But at that time, you know, you just do what you have to do to get open. We were very passionate about Massage Envy and the concept. SBA was the path of least resistance. We didn't know there was another option. And quite frankly, there may not have been. But once we proved ourselves and, and we had really, really solid cash flow, we were watching the banker's eyes when they would look at our P&Ls and they would light up because of the cash that the business would throw off. And so the conventional banking side was less concerned with the collateral because the business was a proven model. At the beginning, there was a lot more risk because nobody was really sure. Landlords, some turned us down to even put a Massage Envy in their strip center because they were thinking it was a trend. They were thinking it was a seed kind of a adult bookstore kind of business. Like they didn't know what they were getting into. So from a conventional standpoint, our main goal with me leaving my job, I did not want any liens on my property. Not that I would want them on if I had a job either. <laughs> yeah. SBA. And this is a little, you know, everybody, the bankers blame everything on the SBA. They're the big bad wolf. right? And uh, what we've learned over time is the SBA has guidelines, but the banks that are doing the deals, they kind of utilize the SBA as the big hairy monster to be afraid of. And you can't do that because SBA says no, they say no, they say no. A lot of that also comes into play. The SBA gives guidelines like get whatever collateral is there to be gotten, but they're there as an insurance group to get liquidity into the market to help people get open. So, you know, just because you go to one lender and, and they say one thing about their SBA program, you could go to two others and get completely different requirements in terms of collateral. But we wanted to get the liens off of Henry's house. And once we had the ability with the cash flow to do that.
2: well, and, and my brokerage accounts. And
0: <laughs> they leaned it up good. My
2: lent- rentals. And- all
0: right. So he, you
2: uh,
1: you guys had some stuff on the line.
2: I had, so much, I had a lot of equity in all those properties. And then my brokerage account, and then I had to get life insurance on top of that. That's right. Yeah. And that was for the second one. But the first one, they didn't really ask for any of that stuff. They did put the liens on, but for some reason, the second one, they wanted to put a lien on my brokerage accounts and get life insurance as well.
1: Yeah. So it sounds like, I guess, once those first two locations, you had some proof of concept. That's when you were like, let's go to these regional banks that that proof of concept gave them confidence to give you a loan without you guys having to put any personal guarantees down on it.
0: Oh no, there's personal guarantees on the loans. Yeah. yeah. We, we had PGs, but we didn't have any direct liens on the houses. Right. And for the audience out there that, that may not understand some of the lingo we're thrown around, you know, if you go to the SBA, they'll say, Hey, we'll, we'll lend you this money. But if you have enough collateral out there to cover the amount that we're lending to you, we're going to put a lien on your house so that you won't be able to sell it. Like Henry tried to refinance, rates changed and he tried to refinance and he had to get the permission of the SBA in order to refinance it for them to release the lien. So you're handcuffed at that point, they, they have you. And like Henry said, they leaned up his brokerage accounts. And the reason for that is the SBA is an insurance company. The bank's only on the hook for 25% of whatever the amount that gets lent. And that's why banks love doing SBA. Their, their exposure is only 25%. Community bank, you know, Banks all have the same goal, which is getting in cash so that they can then turn around and lend it out nine or ten times, you know, nine to ten times for every dollar. Small community bank, the cash in your accounts is really, really important to them. And so one of the levers that we were able to pull with a community bank was they saw, you know, the membership fees that would pour into the bank account. You know, there's a lot of flow in and flow out. But they wanted to have an opportunity to have whatever cash was coming through at their bank because they can work off the float and then go lend nine times off of that. So, you know, getting down the rabbit hole on, you know, fractional reserve banking and whatnot, but it's all part of the process and education of learning the banking system. Your first step is probably SBA. tough to get out from that on your very first business. But from there, you just want to keep on figuring out different levers to pull to get better financing and better terms.
2: Yeah, and just developing a relationship with – we like community banks. Now it's like we have an open checkbook. We just tell them what what we want, and they just have always given it to us. Love it. I mean, like for Amazing Lash Studios, it was over a million dollars for two studios. They lent us for both
0: of them. Damn. So I remember, but the funny thing was to the community aspect, it's all relationships. Everything in life is networks and relationships. And one of our mantras is your net worth is your network yep. and vice versa. Right. And I remember we sat down with our banker at lunch and, and this guy was a former CEO of a different community bank. And we had built this relationship with him and we told him that we wanted to um, be developers for Amazing Lash Studio. And he looks at the two of us and he's like, starts cracking up because Henry and I are talking about eyelash extensions and why it's the next trending thing and this and that. And, he, you know, this guy at this time is probably 65, you know, heading to 70. And he just shakes his head and he goes, if it were anybody other than you two asking me for a million dollars to open up eyelash extension businesses, he's like, I would ask for the check right now and be like, you guys got to get the heck out of my face right now. Oh, my <laughs> God. But because it's you, I'll go throw it in front of loan committee. And because it's you, I'm sure they'll be like, yeah, sure. Those guys, you know, they got a good track record and their other businesses do well. So we're willing to take a risk on them." And that's what they did.
2: And we got a really good deal because we actually had another bank that was courting us really hard. And but we stuck with our local community bank and glad we did.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, yeah, because we, we so we have a massage school as well that helps to develop talent for our massage envies. Ooh, that's interesting. Okay. And, you know, this bank that had been courting Henry and I, when we didn't even know it at the time, we're also courting our two business partners who are spine doctors who had bought and sold, you know, their business back and forth from a private equity firm. Sentinel Capital was the second equity firm that owned massage envy. And that's how they learned about massage envy. Long convoluted Twisty, right? So these guys learned about Massage Envy through the equity partner that owned their business that they were still on the board of, and they got interested in Massage Envy. We all recognize that the bottleneck in the massage industry is service providers and the creation of continuing to build more massage therapists. We decided, like McDonald's, you know, got up the food chain into the beef and potatoes market that's what we decided where we needed to go from a bolt-on business is to start building massage schools. So this bank was also courting our two business partners that we had just joined forces with that we hadn't even known that. And they funded our massage school. But when COVID hit, they completely turned on us. And they asked us to pay off a $600,000 line of credit within 12 months. When the world is upside down, you know, and we were so aggravated and frustrated because it wasn't like we weren't going to pay them. It wasn't like we weren't paying them, but the alarms must've been going off on their side in terms of getting their cash reserves back in order. And they went hammering whatever clients had it and they blew up any relationship it took to get their cash called in. And we'll never do business with them again. And we'll tell everybody not to do business with them again because of it. So
1: that's tough, but that is fascinating that you guys kind of like vertically integrated in a way for just developing a pipeline for your own employees, right? From the massage school. Is that is that a loss leader or just a break-even player? Is that its own profitable venture as well?
0: It has the potential to be a nicely tidy, profitable little business that the real profit, to be honest with you. And it depends on how you structure it. We didn't structure it just to feed our own locations. There there are some folks that are going at it to really just create a training center and use it as a loss leader or a break even because they know that their profit is going to be seen on the side of the Massage Envy business for producing more service uh, capacity. But the way we structured it is, if we're going to go through the hassle of doing this, we're going to figure it out. And then when we figure it out, then we're going to scale it because every Massage Envy nationwide, not to mention all the you know additional brands in the space the me too brands massage ambi alone each location could hire probably 10 to 15 massage therapists right now today no questions asked to get them booked and on the schedule so if we figure once we get it dialed in and we got it where we're starting to scale now we can start building these moving across the country yeah so we did it it's called ambi american massage and bodywork institute and our logo is the united states in between two sets of hands, like massage hands.
1: Oh, I like that.
0: We did it from a branding perspective, knowing that the intent was to figure it out and help other massage envy owners rebuild their pipelines.
1: That's genius. I love that. There is a lot of massage franchises out there now, which I guess, so let's go back to 2008, I think, right? When you opened your first ones where, you know, some people thought it was a trend. Clearly you still own five locations today. So the trend is lasting if that's what it is. But like, year one you know Henry is levered up you guys are probably a little nervous I guess right I mean how'd that first year go was it like fireworks out of the gates or was was there some struggles
2: no it, it was pretty much what we learned on the validation calls it was pretty spot on around month nine you're gonna start being cash flow positive because you're gonna it takes time to build up that member base and then we just continue to explode from there, you know? And so December of 2008, if you recall, that was the housing bubble. We're in a recession. But December of 2008, in the worst retail environment in history, we broke a five-year gift card record in December of 2008. That was a standing five-year record at Massage Envy, and we broke it with our first location um, in the worst retail economy and, you know, ever. Holy crap. Yeah. And then that location is still our cash cow. And, you know, just in the heyday though, boy, the, the numbers were crazy, <laughs> crazy. Great. Yeah. Especially like 2010,
1: 2011. So yeah, I'm curious and, you know, feel free to share as little or as much as you want. You know, I, I looked at the FDD for the most recent one for Massage envy and. The average unit volume is like a little bit above a million bucks. So, like in its heyday, I mean, what would a franchisee see top line and like how profitable is it? You know, I'm going to assume it's, I feel like the top franchises outside of food seem to be 15% to even, I've seen some 25% margins. But yeah, I'm curious for what your guys' experience was.
2: Well, before our first two locations are still our best locations, it's the most mature because. You know, our last three, the market started getting saturated, more massage envies, more competitors. We're diluting our, our labor force, our service providers, because some of them will go to the new location. And, and so you kind of dilute things.
0: I mean, look, I think the easy answer is in the early days when there was more service providers, this business has never lacked for enough clients. Okay. To your... Your question earlier, were we nervous or was it, you know, explode out of the ground? There was certainly nervousness because, you know, we came into an industry that was used to being a nine to five stay at home, wealthy type of a service, right? Like spas days with the, before the bridal parties. And it, it wasn't really an everyday necessity. And that's where Massage Envy really disrupted the industry and, and the, We had a three-legged stool of professional therapists, only licensed therapists in convenient locations. We were typically in high traffic strip malls with affordable prices. And we brought massage to the middle market where everybody could afford it. And people started to recognize because we were educating how great massage is for you. And it's a wellness business play. And we're booked and busy in the mornings now from nine to five, like the therapist's We spoiled them to a degree because it used to be a Thursday through Sunday type business and they couldn't get booked and busy during the week and certainly not during the weekdays. And we were like, look, dip your toe and give us a try. I know that you're working at whatever the Ritz Carlton spa where you're making, you know, as a W2, I mean, a 1099 contractor, you're getting half of whatever the ticket price is. And in a, you know. Hundred and fifty to two hundred dollar massage—that's a really good hourly rate. The issue is you might sit around all weekend and do two of them, right? So we were too good to be true for them. We certainly, you know, we had a different W two model, and our model was one of you're going to be booked and busy. You can actually earn a living doing this job, not a hobby job. And really, the constriction. So to Henry's point, our first two locations did really strongly, but once a secret like that gets out of what a good business it is, then you just keep building, it gets oversaturated, and that's where it is today. Not just with Envy's, you know, with every other Me Too brand that's come on the scene. Yeah. There's still more than enough clients to go around, but the real issue is the therapist supply, which is why we're trying to attack that issue head on. Fifteen years in, we stopped at five and six because we outkicked our coverage. We need to continue to generate more massage therapists. So that's really where the focus is now.
1: If you work in franchises, your most precious resource is time. Belay exists to help you regain control of your time and your focus. They will match you with highly qualified U.S.-based virtual assistant, accounting, social media, and website contractors. In fact, only about 3% of those who apply to support roles with Belay are actually accepted. You don't have to do everything on your own. Accomplish more with Belay. Text WOLF to 55123 to get started. So for, let's just use like your guys' top location. What kind of labor does does a massage location like that require? And, you know, I hear like a lot of people stay away from food franchises because they don't want, you know, some of them require like 20 employees, you know, mix of part-time, full-time. It's, you know, you got high school kids coming in to man the cash register, stuff like that, where people are like, that's too much overhead from a labor perspective. Like, I don't want to deal with that human capital required. What does it look like in Massage Envy at a typical location?
0: A lot. (laughs) Yeah. I
2: mean, look, it's a people-intensive business because it's a one-to-one model. We have to have one service provider for every client. Yeah. And so back in the heyday, when we were the second Massage Envy in Northern Virginia to open, we had like 25 therapists at that first location, 28, I believe, at one time. Now we have 14. Okay. And so 14, there's a general manager, an assistant general manager, and then like probably like five sales, front desk sales associates. And so that's what it looks like today. And, oh, I'm sorry. And then we have three estheticians as well. A lot of people don't know, but Massage Envy is the largest provider of skincare. We do more facials than any company in the world. Really? Huh. Yeah.
1: Didn't know that.
2: Yeah. And we have some really great offerings there. I mean, we do advanced treatments like chemical peels and microdermabrasion, great facials with really high quality products. And, you know, so the goal is, in by 2025 as a company, 30% of our business is going to be skincare. So that's what we're focused on as well. It's a little bit easier to hire estheticians although in Virginia you have to be a master esthetician so it makes it a little bit more difficult but that's an area that we're the company and we're focused on and that's pro- more profitable too it's a more profitable because there's enhancements that it's easier to add those enhancements to skin care than it is for body care
1: interesting now I mean it's always good to diversify the revenue a little bit and yeah I just I, I didn't know that that was a service offered But uh, something you guys said earlier, I think you said nine months before the first location was cash flow positive. So in the context of franchise due diligence, right, there's in the disclosure document in item seven in particular, right, there's always a line item for just about all the franchises where they say additional capital required. And that the intention is for listeners who don't know this, that Right. Once you launch the location, it's not going to be profitable on day one. You got to kind of work to ramp up your cash flow so that you can cover all the costs of the business. So, for you guys, you're saying it took nine months. And then after that, you could pay for all your massage therapists on staff, the rent, if you were leasing the location, you know, it was nine months and then you were free and clear.
2: Yeah. And because the validations were there already and, they already knew kind of the trajectory that you'll be on. It's been, it was pretty consistent. Maybe some did less than in nine months Some I mean, it took more than nine months, but it was around that time frame. That's quick.
1: I mean, that, that's great.
2: You know, and so because it's a monthly recurring revenue <clears> throat> model, throat> membership model, once you get it to a point where you have those members and then you, make sure that you manage your attrition. Ever since that nine month, we've never had a negative month ever because it's a consistent recurring revenue model. And so we love, we love models like that. And so we're willing to be patient and get, you know, if it takes nine months or a year, but then once you reach that, it's pretty consistent, very consistent.
1: Yeah, and I'm curious, you guys have mentioned your validation, right? Where you spoke to franchisees. I'm not looking for an exact number, but like generally how many franchisees do you think you spoke to before saying, Okay, let's do this. Let's go in on Massage Envy.
0: At
2: least four or five.
0: Okay. And then I also I was still working my corporate job at this time. And that was one thing, you know, because we've looked at a lot of brands in the last fifteen years. We stumbled upon a Cadillac brand on number one, Massage Envy. So we just thought they all were like that. It was like, oh, franchising's great. (laughs) Uh, They give you all this information. They let you talk to these people. They tell you exactly how it's gonna go. If you just do what they tell you, then everything is gonna be great. And not every brand, in fact, very few brands did the validation calls the way Massage Envy did. But that's what happens when you're successful. You want the world to know what a great system that you've built. And franchisees are happy and proud to get on the phone It's kind of a give back and, you know, lifting people up from the rung of the ladder to help them climb up. It was such a fun time to be in that brand because the information was readily available. People were all doing well. Even if you were not a great operator, you still did well. The model was really, really well architected.
2: Yeah. And, you know, because a lot of times in the FTDs, they'll say, okay, you need 50,000 in operating capital, which really... It's misleading because a lot of it, it's based on the first three months.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: But we knew with Massage Envy, okay, we need to budget for about nine, a budget for a year, make sure we have enough runway to cover us for a year. And it was like clockwork. That's how it happened at every location. I think maybe our last location, it took a year to get cash flow positive. You know, but a lot of FTDs I see – They don't, you always want to make sure you're well capitalized. And a lot of times in the FDDs, they just will give you a number that's based on.
1: Yeah, it's typically three months.
2: (laughs) You can't really go by
1: that. You can't really go. Yeah, I mean, it's typically three months is what I see. And then uh, some will do six months uh, or like maybe three to six months is their range. But even six months, you definitely want to budget for more.
2: You do, because that's a big reason why businesses fail. They just undercapitalized. They underestimated what it takes.
1: 100%. And I'm curious, so what is like the churn rate, right, of a massage member, I guess? You know?
2: It's always been around 4%.
1: Annually? Oh, per month. Per month,
2: yeah. Four, maybe 5%. That's still
1: pretty low. But I guess compounding that can get out of hand quickly if you're not adding new
2: members. Yeah, I mean, we always have to add members. We always have to add members. But I think the company now is looking at ways to be more profitable too. And so they've given franchisees a lot of leeway on you can set your own rates. You don't have to come together as a co-op to agree to raise prices. You can just do it on your own and other things like we're always known as a discount model and you get your first intro massage at a very low rate. Well, we just, now they're letting franchisees decide whether to offer the intro rate or not. So we, once we had that opportunity, we were stopping offering that intro rate and charging regular retail rates unless they join and then they'll get a better deal.
1: Yeah. It sounds like the system's just totally dialed in.
2: I mean, look, we've had our ups and downs, and this leadership, I think they're doing a good job, and certainly doing a better job in terms of gaining the trust back of the franchisees, because the regime before that, it destroyed the trust with the franchisor.
1: So there was, it's work capital now, which is like, I mean, they own feels like bigger uh, every franchise out there but
2: it was was the the leadership team at the time okay you know where they would force you to buy retail for this promo that promo and just shoving product down our throats that a lot of it we ended up giving away or just so now that's stopped with the new leadership and she's big on just letting people opt in or not and i love i love her approach yeah so, yeah, it's, it's better now <laughs> than it was about three years ago.
1: Now, I mean, I've seen that's happened a lot across many different industries for franchises. And for me, like uh, Quiznos, they've obviously contracted massively over since their peak. But that was a big part of it was like the team there seemed to realize that they could make more money off of being the supplier to all their franchisees. And they stopped caring about the actual franchisees businesses and their revenue and profitability. So they just wanted as many locations open as possible, selling them all the food products and paper, you know, napkins, forks, etc., whatever you need at a restaurant. And they lost sight of the franchisees.
2: So and making them pay higher than what they could get it themselves.
1: Exactly. It was above market rates, which w- with a good franchise, right, the scale is actually theoretically supposed to mean that the franchisee can buy it at below like their mom and pop competitors. So, oh, yeah,
2: there's other brands I won't mention, but man, it's it's robbery, yeah, <laughs> it really is. It's
1: like crazy, yeah. I mean, it's tough, but uh, you definitely got to vet the leadership and kind of get a sense for how they'd operate in these scenarios. Something you guys have mentioned a lot is the hiring, right, of the massage therapist. So, I see this as a mistake sometimes that first time buyers make, which is. Like they look at a massage at me, and maybe they think either they love massages as a consumer or whatever. But, and I'm not saying it's not a massage business, right? But like, would you say that that's the most important things that makes this business tick? Because to me, I think like, based on what you're saying, is you have to be a good recruiter. Is is an important part of the business? Which maybe like, were you thinking that going into it?
0: We were just talking about this in the car ride. We're researching a another brand right now, and. I was telling Henry about a conversation we had, I had with our director of operations this morning, because I, I was the manager of the first location. And I said to her, I've said, look, we've never, there's always been downward pressure to obtain talent at the front desk. And it's tough when you're competing with folks that are paying a lot more than we are to work at Best Buy to scan a barcode. I mean, our front desk, There's a lot expected of them, including the management team. And But how I used to do it is I would say, look, if you want an hourly job, you can go to Chick-fil-A or any number of wonderful brands to go punch a clock. But if you want to learn how to be a business owner someday, or if you want to think of this as a business internship on the fly, and even if that's even too lofty, if you want to learn how to sell, because that's what Henry and I did, you know, we were sales guys. If you want to walk away with a skill and more than just a paycheck, I'm never going to be able to pay you top dollar like some of these other places are, but you're going to leave here with a higher level of skill set that will continue to help you earn more as you progress. And so we really, truly believe in developing from within and having them go along a track of you know front desk to some type of a leadership assistant manager program and then general manager program. And then from there, Henry and I have some wonderful leaders that have been with us for 10 to 13 years now that kind of talking like, if we don't find another brand where we can find more responsibility for them, we're going to lose this. We've had a brand come into town that's picked off two of our general managers in the last couple of months. Instead of getting angry, which I was at the beginning, I took it as a compliment to say, well, it's because we're developing good people, because we have not grown big enough for them to have that next step that's on us so we, we got to get back out and find another brand to scale just because we we're not ready to scale more with massage envy doesn't mean that we can't find another brand to grow and scale and give more opportunity
1: yeah no definitely um that's something i've seen with uh multi owners and like on this show we've had some multi-brand owners and it's cool like what you can do as for you guys as the owners, right? It just gives more growth opportunities for the employees. And even if it's maybe the pay could be this, like there was one owner where the pay was the same, whether you're managed, regardless of the brand you were managing, so to speak, but it's just a different skill set and a different area for someone to learn about, you know, jumping from a possibly like an adjacent industry. But yeah, I do find it interesting just that like, this skill set required, right? It, to me, a lot of it's just sales. Like you got to know how to sell the customer. You got to know how to sell your employees to join your organization. It's a lot of sales across the board. You know, for the life of a business owner.
0: Well, it is, and culture is hugely important. We we learned that from the woman that was the chief training officer when we first went through franchisee training at Massage Envy, and we've really tried to follow what she taught us, and it served us really well. We've got a really good, in our opinion, retention rate with our core group of folks and doing some due diligence on the brand that we're looking at right now. We drove to some locations locally here and we visited the locations that are run by one of the, if not the top operator in that brand. And then we went to another location that this person did not own. And it was palpable, the difference, the energy level, the level of detail of this location, one of the locations we went into been open for three years and it looked like it was freshly painted yesterday. The staff was like <laughs> sunshine and engaging and we felt great. We're like, woohoo! Yeah. And then we went to the location of the underperforming. What we anticipate is probably, uh, we won't be surprised, I don't think, when we see what the performance numbers are of this other location. And we walked in, the two at the front desk were bickering about something going on with the franchisor and the new ownership and how they didn't have what they needed and didn't even make eye contact with us Mm. at all to acknowledge our presence in the lobby. We started walking around the facility. We could have been like walking stuff out the front door, stealing stuff. They never even looked at us. I
2: was right there at the front counter. I just had my arms on the front counter and watched them to talk to each other. And then literally maybe about eight minutes later, Cause I, Oh, can I help
1: you eight minutes? That's far too long. That's uh, customer service. one one got to make eye contact, greet customers as they walk in.
0: It was awful for sure. But just that simple concept that we all three on this call agree to it's common sense, but it's not easy to execute on. I mean, and I said to Henry, when we got back in the car, I'm like, let's not pretend like some people aren't walking into our locations. We hope to goodness that doesn't happen, but you know, it happens. But it was a good reminder to understand the difference of great culture and not such great culture and to continue to drive your management team because somebody doesn't quit their business or their brand, they quit their manager. And to kind of go back to what Henry was saying earlier, doing this for 15 years, we've been bought and sold three times, maybe four. And sometimes that energy comes from the private equity group, but more often than not, it comes from the leadership of the CEO or the C-suite folks yeah and it can be contagious or it can take you to the depths of hell it depends on that the leadership you know it, it really does start there
1: definitely now it's it's fascinating just hearing it from you guys on the franchisee level but then also on the zor level given that you guys have seen so much since you joined my final question because i know we're out of time here if you guys i am putting you on the spot a little bit if you had like one thing that you wish you knew going into this journey And if we already talked about it, you know, feel free to kind of just say it again. But what would you say is like the one thing you've learned that you wish you knew when you started?
2: I wish I would have learned more about how big to scale to get to a point where if you want to exit, that you're going to have a lot of potential buyers that are going to want to buy you. And so we know what it takes now, right, to get to a level where we're now we're thinking bigger bigger. And this next brand could work out really well. And eventually down the road, it could be our biggest exit.
1: Are you Um, saying five locations? Is that kind of in like no man's land of size where maybe too small for private equity and too big for individuals?
2: Yeah, well, in Massage Envy, there are private equity firms already. And so, yeah, we we could sell to the private equity firm that has acquired a lot in, in our area. So we have that, but I'm talking about just general, you know, private equity firms that focus on franchising. You know, once you can get to probably around 12 locations, where now it's a platform, right? It's not just locations, you're just offering a platform that you've already scaled it. <laughs> now you're gonna command multiples of six to eight X or more, but six to eight X on a platform like that doing that kind of
1: EBITDA. Now, it's funny you say 12 locations too, because that's the, uh, so far like the largest franchisee I've had on this show is uh, a guy named Jamie Weeks, who owns about like 140 Orange Theories. But he said, once he got the 12 Orange Theories, a lot of private equity came knocking and they already had been, but that was when they were really like put the foot on the gas. And that's, it was at that stage where he partnered with a PE firm and, you know, they helped him. Yeah, it was a recapitalization, but they helped him go from 12 to 140. He's probably well beyond that now, even. Uh, It's been a few
2: months. But uh. yeah, so there's that going on in in Orange Theory and there's consolidation and and massage envy. So we didn't know that going into it. And so now when we're looking at something, we're going into it thinking that. (laughs) Right. And not just, oh, we'll have four or five or six locations and we're doing well. So, you know, do we want to do any more? So yeah, we've learned that. And and I think that's now our approach to things.
1: Sure. Yeah, it's it's a different mindset. I get it. Uh, Well, all right, guys, look, this has been awesome. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Before I let you go, is there anywhere online or website social account that people can follow along your journey?
2: um you know i don't do social media as much <laughs> 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 i tried i'm trying to cut that out and I've, i have have a lot of things but um i guess if you know if anyone wants to you know we have our facebook pages for our you know locations and instagram and probably the best way is if someone wants to talk to me is uh just reach out to me on Instagram and it's uh, Henry underscore H underscore Kim zero one. You can message me on, on Insta.
0: For me, just, just shoot me an email at Steven S T E P H E N varab V is in Victor E R E B as in Bravo 88 at gmail.com. Happy. If there's anything that we can do to help or point someone in a direction or, you know, we're never short on an opinion. Uh, happy to help. <laughs> Love it. All right.
1: I appreciate that, guys. My audience uh, will definitely as well. So um, yeah, great chatting. And uh, thanks again for coming on.
0: Thanks, Wolf. Great to meet you. Thanks, Wolf.
1: Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen.